So I'm going to begin the study anchoring in a reference that has been used in teachings past. It's a very important scripture because it really tells us what has happened in this scenario of uh, David's family life. It's not to bring us all the way back to the tragedy, but rather it helps define the situation that has been tragic. So I think that whenever we have clarity, when things are inarguably presented, then we have really nothing else to do but to come into agreement with God. And it limits then how many excuses we have to find. It really puts us into a position of not the excuse, but Lord, you're the answer. That's the point that's being made here. The familiar passage that you can refer to is in James, the verse that I'm going to read that I think you will agree has everything to do with what David certainly is experiencing presently and what we see in our world contemporarily right now. Verse 13 in chapter 1 of James says this, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He doesn't do it. God gets the blame for it, but he does not do it. It continues to say this, but each one, that's you and I, anybody that, that would say we've discovered that we're not perfect can say, hmm, this kind of addresses that. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So we saw an example of that with Amnon. Then, when desire was conceived, or has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The contrast leads us to understand what then can God be cited for, and it's not temptation. Therefore, it is the gifts that God has given. One of the greatest provisions that we have been able to cite for David's life right now is that he was given forgiveness. He was granted mercy. And he was promised an enduring kingdom. In spite of all that had happened, the grievous consequences that ensued, God was not going to take away his word from David. And the reason that that's an important citation is because, you know, we want to be those who establish ourselves in the promises of God and to find ourselves reassured when things all of a sudden don't seem to be so reassuring. David was one that exemplified that, even though in the context of James, the principle is that there's a payback. God, though, is not paying a man back. The sin itself is paying a man back. And so, you know, God's into investments, investing into his kingdom, investing into living a life that promotes the promises of God. So, the picture right now has only become confusing because of the domestic dysfunction that we've looked at before. And now what we want to do is, is continue to see some principles played out here and to be able to say that what God had spoken to David is unfolding right now. There's some things that we looked at on Sunday that still deserve just a bit of attention. But I'm going to call us back to this one area that still intrigues me in the sense of, of how unnecessary it was in lieu of the consequence that was suffered. And that is in this phrase in chapter uh, 13 is where we're picking it up. And I'm going to pick up the last verse of chapter 20, excuse me, uh, 13, verse 20. And it says this, Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. So after the situation that devastated her, 
she went to be at her brother's house. And the word that I find still compelling is this desolate, this description of how she would remain in her brother's house. And desolate is interesting in terms of what it means. It's a statement of weakness and deep, depressive regret. It has other kinds of implications to it, but it means that basically this person in this situation has resigned to hopelessness, utter despair. So was that God's intention for any of us to live that way? And of course it isn't. One of the ways that we can cite that is going back to Genesis when the first couple committed sin. And their committing of that sin was as heinous from God's perspective as we look at this and say heinous, diabolical, treacherous, unexcusable. For Adam and Eve, the same can be cited, plunging the entire world into the consequence of sin. That's the way it plays out. You can read ultimately the solution that God put into effect in a dispensation of judgment when he flooded the entire world that ended up becoming just deplorably, desperately wicked. And so when we look at this word, what then could be the alternative to what it implies, desolate? I think this is the one word, devotional. One, she had a father who had been, even at this time, credited with marvelous poetry and songs. He was the, he would have been the rock band of the ages back then. Everything that he penned was to God, and he was noted for his poetry. That could never be taken away from him. It was eternal music. It was written with skill. It was mandated to be played before the Lord, both morning and evening, such as every day's work required. And so there was a person that she could go to. And he's not an anti-type. He is a type of literally a father figure in faith. Frailties and failures are one thing, but faithfulness and devotion are another contrast. And it's not that he's endeavoring to be overtly hypocritical. What it was was sin in his life. It was a specific sin that led to another specific sin, that led to another specific sin. But the Lord packaged all that up on that given day when Nathan came in to give to him a parable that compelled him to cite a judgment upon himself. But coming to that point, he was given the word, and you shall not die. To his daughter, Tamar, you shall not remain desolate. The separation between David as a father, but whom the scriptures continue to cite as our heavenly father, vast, for sure vast. But because David wasn't given an opportunity, then this chasm becomes broader, probably we say historically uncrossable. So the word to us really ought to be that in times when we can say we have found ourselves desolate, weak and without hope, and unable to do any other thing but hide, we have to consider what is God's heart. And God's heart is that we have devotions to him and for him. We begin to talk the language of who he is over our circumstance. Very important. What does it do? It frees a person of guilt because we know that God is merciful, gracious, and forgiving, and he loves us. 
The other thing that it does is it brings an advocacy in over what is the authoritative and cunning of the devil to take control of you. And that's never a good thing. It never works. To go to her brother's house is the wrong picture. To go to her father's house is the better picture. Though David doesn't represent the perfect father, he does represent a father who indeed does love his daughter. We're not going to see much of that transacted here. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening. But I think the word just begged to be appreciated in terms of the desolation that still is the effect of sin, and people need to know that there's a remedy to that. And it's not going back to the ones that per se have really no authority over life and maybe not even an answer for you. You go to your father. You go to your father's house. You come to a place such as this, which is our father's house. It can be the most difficult place to enter into when that kind of scenario happens for whatever reason. Sometimes crossing that threshold, you almost need to be pulled and towed in, pushed inside. But it is a high recommendation that we need to take that step of faith and walk through those doors. So as we understand where she's at right now, historically she lived in Absalom's home the rest of her days. She did not marry and she did not give birth to children. And that ultimately is the desolation she would have experienced. Was there an alternative? Could there have been something different? I think the answer is yes. If Rahab back in the days when Israel launching out from Egypt, satisfying the conquest of the promised land under Joshua, was able to guarantee her, who was known as a harlot, you and your family will be saved for what you have done. Mark your window with a ribbon, a sash. Let it down. No one will touch you. She was pagan. She literally was entrenched in the enemy line. And what she did is she turned from what she had been known for to what God truly knew her as. And it's an incredible story of redemption and salvation. And if you want to talk about a hard threshold to cross over, it's how could I possibly be saved for what I've done and who I live with? But she's an example of that kind of posterity that the Lord gave. So moving from this right now, we're not going to find out honorable mention from Absalom. In fact, his silence on this tells us a little bit about his nature it does say that when David found out in verse 21, heard of all these things, he was very angry. Again, this is where we separate a picture of him being a father to right now being crippled even in a disposition that is not suitable at any time. There's righteous anger, but that isn't what this is speaking of. He's clearly mad at Amnon, but not resolving the consequence that Amnon needs to have administratively. As a result of that, it's going to become a lingering episode right now. And some have cited, and I think that this could be true, David has, a tr he has problems right now being able to truly express how much God has forgiven him, how much mercy he has known, while distinctly separating what is that reality for him from the need still to battle with the sin nature, both his anger and, two, what it means when there is transgression. How could there have been resolve in terms of what he discovered about Amnon? Why did he find out about it the way he did, and what could he have done about it? Would it have meant administratively that Amnon would have been subject to the penalty of death for violating this woman, his half-sister, 
Well, we do, we do not know that as of right now. We know the lost sites, there's a punishment, both in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. It was very clear. She cried out. He forced himself. But David right now is right now in a situation where he has some paralysis because of remembering too much of his own faults and failures. And, you know, that's one of the things is that remembering too much of our faults and failures, but forgetting the promises of God can cause us to stall on making righteous decisions. We always have to choose to make overtly righteous decisions, even though there may be a finger pointing at us or the whisper of the enemy against us, the taunts. But as he now has anger issues, he's going to see that this anger also is perking up in Absalom. Absalom in verse 22, as we remembered on Sunday, was the one who spoke to his brother Amnon, but neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. So it seems to be exclusive to the violation it seems to be. But remember, just to give some distinction, Absalom is the third brother or the third heir to the kingdom. He's the third eldest. Same dad, different mom. And so noted on this, there is Michael. David and her never had children. Abigail would have been the next woman, along with a Jezreelitess, they both had children. We don't know much of um, what we understand Abigail was to him. But the bottom line is, is this lineage of children that now are part of David's very complex family all have, at least three of them, great dispositional problems. And so David does need to step in and make decisions. That being said, is that there would be no doubt that Absalom may have had a motive now hinging on the failure of Amnon. That if Amnon's going to not be dealt with by his dad, he will deal with Amnon and then place himself in, not second position. I mean, he's really trying for first position. It really wouldn't be his. But that's the idea, is that something in him now is strategizing perhaps a play that at David's life right now, he's limited with how long he will rule. And so the guys may be indeed very competitive as to who gets that spot. That's pride. Desolation can be resolved by sincere, humble devotion. Desperation, not having something done in accordance to God's way, puts us into strategizing plans that can be enacted our way. Both of these men cite that and are failures to it. 23, and it came to pass after two years that Absalom had sheep shears and Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. And this is where the strategy is hidden from us. But the years now have passed. Nothing new in the narration. Tamar is still there. He, though, in what appears to be now a two-year absence, even from what appears to be a frequent visiting of his father, seemingly comes to him only for this one purpose, and that's to throw a sheep-shearing party. But it's actually going to be a slaying of a sheep. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, verse 25, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. David is not going to participate. He gives a precaution on that being an overburden on Absalom's part, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense because Absalom had his own place. He had his own servants. 
I'm sure he lacked nothing with regard to the treasury. So there seems to be something in this that, that perhaps is less than a more important issue to talk about. And that may have been on the issue of Tamar and Absalom. How is she doing? And it's time to bring her back home. Or Absalom, how are you doing right now? How are you doing? Do you remember that that was one of the confrontations that was lovingly done in a situation where two brothers, one pitted against the other, that was Cain and Abel, and God interjected himself in a time where anger was seething in Cain's heart. And I shared that on Sunday. And the confrontation was simply, there's something going on in your heart, Cain. Sin's knocking at your door. You have to master it. And so it is very likely that David had an awareness through the gossip that could have flowed through the channels of all these servants what was going on in Absalom's mind, even to the degree possibly of a strategy to get even with Amnon. Two years, long time to create a situation, a scenario that now we know is going to be revenge. And so the king withholds himself. He dismisses the brothers to be able to attend this on the premise of goodwill. And so the king stays back. Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. There was originally a hesitation, then there was an allowance. He makes sure that Amnon is definitely included in this. Now, why would, upon invitation, Amnon go to a party that Absalom is throwing when he was, in fact, very aware that that was Tamar, his full sister? The only thing that I'm able to conjecture is that that shows you Amnon had no conscience whatsoever as to what he did. And he obviously maybe thought well too much of himself, being in the lineage of David and next to be heir of the throne. He may have been the, what you would call, pomp manifestation in a circumstance that was tragic. He had well too much of a boastful attitude to think that he could come back in and be a part of that which Absalom was throwing. And that's what arrogance can do. It can totally misread situations, and it can certainly mislead the person who thinks too much of themselves. That's why God hates pride, because it has a strategy that the enemy uses that actually makes us very easily deceived about how well we're doing and about how much others think of us. We don't have a description much of Amnon, not that I've been able to find. We do have a description of Absalom, though. It'll be given to us later, and we'll see that unfold. But at least the contrast of description is pretty remarkable. Where Amnon might have felt, I am the heir apparent. I can do what I want, when I want, to whomever I want. And I'm going to be king. Absalom had what has been described as a charismatic personality and a very beautiful appearance. He would have been, in the perception of men's eyes and of women's eyes, the catch of the day. The person to look most like. And with him, then, would also come an issue of pride. So both men, deceived by the pride of life, and both of them exercising in a futility of deception. This appears to be a calculated strategy on the part of Absalom. And so when we continue on in this, king's sons being released, verse 28, Absalom had commanded his servant, saying, Watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him, 
Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule. So he's been stricken and probably smited by the sword. The word of the Lord was to David that the sword shall not depart from your house. And this appears to be the first manifestation of that to come to pass. We've said in previous teachings that God does work preemptively. And that is true by conscience, by a word from somebody who has an accountability, sensibility. But the Lord also works in ways that ought not be discounted, and that would be post-mortem, after death. See, everybody that can say, that's me, I died in my desolation. That's me, I was killed in that situation. That's precisely the point to be made. And in fact, one that I think was made at least illustratively in a real-life scenario with Jesus in his ministry of calling forth from the dead one who seemingly, we would say, did nothing to deserve death, only except that it was appointed. It's appointed that every man die once and afterwards judgment. That's the story of Lazarus. And the Lord's heart broke. Did it break because Lazarus had died? What we hear when we refer back to that chapter is that he wept. And what Jesus is doing in what we would call the drama of God in his humanity is weeping for what is the consequence of sin, death. And it hurts. And it provokes doubts and questions. It compels people to just want to disappear and to remain dysfunctional outside the reach of their hearts being touched by genuine love and mercy and grace. It can be a real, if you would, enemy of the soul. And so that being said is that I, this idea right now of can God work post-mortem, in other words, after a person has been dead, and the answer is affirmatively yes. What about the person that died? If it's a literal death, that does in fact come by the promise of what Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Meaning that for those who in fact die, it was equated, Jesus said this to his disciples, he sleeps. Oh, okay, so we'll go there and wake him up and it ought to be great. Uh, Lazarus is dead. Postmortem means that because Jesus did die, he did so preemptively that in our postmortem, after our death, we go to be with him immediately. In what we know to be true about the scriptures, the Jewish people did believe in eternal life and what we would know as the afterlife. And David had that hope. You remember that when he committed sin with Bathsheba, and they conceived and had a son, the son was taken within about seven days. What was David able to say prophetically when he moved into that time of mourning? When he knew in his heart from his ears that things had changed, there was no longer any need for prayer and fasting, he got up, he washed himself, he asked for something to eat. Everyone said, why are you eating at a time like this. He said, I cannot be with, my son cannot come back to me, but one day I will go to be with him. And David was speaking prophetically. In other words, post-mortem. David had a hope with regard to that life, and he lived his life in the hope of the afterlife. And so even as we have that for us, and we need to tell the world about that, we also have present tense con considerations when there is the spiritual death of people. We cannot be their God, but we can point them to the God that is our God. And we need to do that. Whenever we start becoming the God of a person's death, we've imposed way too much on ourselves, and we've given them far too much to believe in something of continuance in us. 
But there is a post-mortem reality of God being able to even take that crisis and grant something that is what we would say is the remedy to the heart that's been broken, to the life that seemingly is depleted and exhausted, not able to draw breath anymore. It's a beautiful moment, actually, that many people have testimonies of, of how God saved them post-mortem. They blew it preemptively, but God came in after they died in that situation and said, I'm going to resurrect you. Resurrect you. We would notably call it a resuscitation. Lazarus would actually die again. Some have cited, well, maybe Jesus was so hurt over the fact he had to pull Lazarus out of paradise to live through another tenuous tenure on earth. But even if so, Lazarus was a lover of the Lord and a servant of God. It's a fascinating story, but it is a post-mortem story. He was dead in the stages of decay. Four days, Elizabeth said, my brother stinks really bad now. And yet Jesus would compel her. Do you believe that he can be raised? Lord. Because he was moving in the heart of Elizabeth and Mary, who would come secondary in that scenario in the Gospel of John. And he would be addressing the depth of their faith. How much do you believe? You know that I love your brother, and you know that I love you too. I've traveled this far. You're disappointed that I wasn't here before the appointment of death was assigned to him. But I'm here to do something even more extraordinary because of that delay. And see, that's one of the things that we need to realize too. On the post-mortem, there's always the factoring of delay. If God had just done something faster, been more involved, but the reason that God doesn't do that is he paces himself to the truth that must be realized before the miracle. You've got to come to terms with does God work post-mortem? Can he bring a heart that's dead and resurrect it? A future and a hope that he's promised. Can he do that post-mortem? So that's a principle that I'm citing from the devotional today. But this is actually what we would call the fallout of things that haven't been put correctly in place. And when things aren't in place correctly, we call it displacement. Or if you would, the drama of entropy. Everything will tend towards a state of disorder and so you have to continue working to put things in place. Might be on the lighter side, but you know, I have an office and I truly, it looks like a mad professor's office. I've got papers all over the place. It's like when I was teaching, I'd come up with boxes of papers to correct. And there were a couple of times where I wasn't tending the box and it weakened and so in carrying these boxes, they gave out from the bottom and scattered everything that was orderly, ready to help me efficiently move through some 200 papers that I'd given out, either through the week or the day. So you've got to check what is holding things, and you've got to make sure that it's not going to fall out. And then when that happens, you've got to go after it again and and. You know, don't take a picture of it, Christy, but my office, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to put it back in order. But it's a work. It's a work of my mind and knowing where to put them so I will have easy access to them or if they're important at all. And I've told her, I said, I just, I think I'm going to just dump it. I'm going to do that. No, no, no. You can't do that. I've, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean up my life. No, no, no. You can't do it by dumping you must organize yourself. You must set a priority on getting your life in order. Can't I just dump it? 
can't I just go to the dump? No, your room is a dump. You don't need to go to it. I get it squared away. So though our life seemingly can be in the dump, we have a charge to put it in order and to have in that orderliness, not in our own strength, but the dependence upon the Lord. Lord, change my mind concerning the work that I have yet to do. Where I feel like giving up, help me not to give up. Where I feel I've done so little, help me to rejoice in what it is I've done well. Oh, good, I filed one paper perfectly. And there it is. Though I have 120 papers to file perfectly, I got one paper in place. David right now, as we move through this scenario, would be oblivious at this time to the heinous crime that has been committed. This would be called in law premeditative murder. Some would cite, okay, well, what about the avenger of blood? Tell us about that character in the Old Testament. Okay, I will briefly. It was a provision in adjudicating a murder, a person who was guilty was able to run to a place of refuge. It was a Levitical city. They would run to that place so that the avenger of blood, the death angel, would not be able to enter in and, if you would, take care of business. It would have to be listened to by the elders and the priests and adjudicated on the merit of innocence or guilt. Guess who wouldn't run to the city of refuge? One who was guilty of murder. One who was guilty of murder would literally be sending himself to his death sentence. One guilty of murder would be fleeing from that, hiding removing himself. Absalom would not be able to run to a city of refuge in order to be protected from what he did because he, in fact, was the one who murdered his brother. And the only sentence that could have been given to him was to pay with his life. You may say, would David have done that? We do not know. David's not even in yet the knowledge of this. Because Absalom, in fact, will flee. And he'll do so because he knows exactly what the consequence of his anger played out in a premeditative scheme to take out his brother, who should have been addressed by his father, and it never happened. So everything just gets compounded. So when you see things in your life that are compounding themselves, then one of the things you have to do is make an assessment. Okay, how is this happening? And it's not to retrace it in order to take another advantage of it. It's literally just saying, okay, Lord, this is, this is what I want to do to rectify anything that I may have been responsible for in this. I want to rectify it. And I want to do that so that I'm not running from you. I cannot run from you. I've tried it. Never worked. The times that I have run have always been in fear for what I've done or what I think may happen to me. I will not run from you. And so even possibly, Absalom may have had an opportunity to appeal once again to his father. It would seem to me, though, that Absalom has been angered against his father and very likely because his father did not address the situation of his daughter Tamar could be but both of them are guilty for not doing what they should have done before it came to this state it is though possible that Amnon now had a grudge against his dad because his father had not acted after he had heard the incident with Amnon. And as a result, then he said, I'm taking this into my own hands. But the Lord brings a principle back to all of us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And that's the time when you drop the sword 
you have to let go of the sword that kills and you have to take up the sword that sharpens, the sword that pierces the heart in a way that's surgical. You know, it's not infrequently that I have to move into almost a mindset of lawyering at times with the challenges of corporate life. And I can write a pretty good paper, but at times my papers can be also emotionally biased because of the way I feel about certain challenges administratively. And I'm not talking about in the group, but outside. You know, whenever you're dealing with real estate, there's outside forces. So I always have to ask, Lord, how do you want me to speak through the pen? And Lord, I know your heart is that the pen is mightier than what I could put in my hand, which is a sword. And I know that the correct sword to use that is better suited for the pen is the Word of God. So this right now has come to a point where a life now has been lost and there's not going to be anything saving to Amnon. He has been murdered conspiratorially. He's been murdered by Absalom's servant staff. They've contributed to it. There's blood on their hands too. So guess where they don't get to stay any longer? They don't get to stay in the palace. They basically, by putting their hand to this, end up being recipients of now being renegades and vagabonds. They won't get to stay there. A house now that was to accommodate Tamar will be emptied of the security forces that were there for her. And we don't have anything else said. It's a tragic story still. So the sons right now seemingly that went there are now going to dispense and scatter. They're headed back to Jerusalem. Probably the distance of where Absalom lived and Jerusalem is estimated about 13 miles, probably in that vicinity. So it'd be a pretty good little walk or donkey ride. But this is now where they're headed, from the north back to Jerusalem. And as they do so, there is word that precedes their arrival. While they were on the way, that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So remember the whisperings that come in one source before everything is fully revealed can be the very thing you do not want to act on. You have to wait until information prevails that gives you the full picture. See, we have people right now today making decisions before all the facts are in. Judgment's in. Facts haven't been presented. And people, again, make errors on the other side of this. This is what the enemy wants. He wants us to be not fact-based, but biased-based. He wants to move us emotionally to do things that are contrary to the way, will, and weight of God. Waiting's a tough one for us. We don't like it. But, you know, when I consider what my dad would have gone through and my mom would have gone through in the World War II era, she wouldn't hear for months concerning my father flying the Corsair or the SBD. He flew from what we can determine over the Marshall Islands and actually received uh, a distinguished flying cross for his skills in being a pilot. My dad was so discreet, we never really got to know truly how heroic he was. But what I'm saying is the way heroism was going on on that side, body counts were coming in on my mom's side. And it was difficult at those times to really process you know, who actually lost their lives. And sometimes wives never found out for years and years later. But I remember my mom's countenance. It was always tending the kids. She never allowed us really to know, because my dad was also in Vietnam, so I'm not suggesting I was in World War II. <laughs> what I'm saying is that my father also was involved in that war. And I remember the disposition. Communication was much better during Vietnam. But I never saw her jump to conclusions. I never saw her thinking the worst 
about what may have happened. There was no information that said anything other than trust the Lord. You don't have all the facts. My brother, eldest in Vietnam, clearly remember that. And letters would slowly come in from him to us. And I remember there was always just this gentle sigh from my dad, who would have been in the Pentagon at the time, and taking care, actually, of the account of uh, military missing in action. He waited for details to come in confirmed by fact. This being said is that as a result of this information that's getting out, what is the enemy trying to do? The enemy is trying to literally take David out, to put him in such an overwhelming sense of being without any means to correct this situation. He doesn't want the lineage of David to continue. The enemy knows what? The enemy knows that God has promised through the words to David that a king will sit eternally on his throne. Who's that king? That's Jesus. The enemy knows who's coming. God's coming. God's coming to be the reality of the salvation that we know is necessary to settle and address this dysfunction. And all this is is a picture of what dysfunction looks like. It's just compressed and consolidated. It could fit on any newspaper front page. And we would say, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Mm. And David's having to have all of that right now to deal with. But at any rate, the king arose, tore his garments, lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. This is an act of contrition. David is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed probably in realizing he failed Tamar. He's overwhelmed feeling that he failed his son Amnon. Though Amnon was despicable, he was a son. And the loss of any son would have an effect. How these right now, he's presuming, are all gone. He's devastated in what his mind is telling him on the information that's coming. And so as he's on the ground once again, I have no doubt that he is communing with the Lord in sorrow. I have no doubt that this is a very sincere opportunity of putting himself in humility before God on the dirt, very unkingly, but not undevotionally. David does have it right, even when he's under the false presumption of what actually happened. And so the servants are tearing off their clothes. Then Jonadab, he's not to be admired right now, the son of Shimea, that's David's elder brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, for by the, by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. And so now, what do we know? We know that he knew it. We know that he said nothing about it. We know that in essence, he's made a confession. He's withheld information that could have been valuable to David. How does he address David? He dresses David as his king, my lord. But it would indicate that his silence over the past two years had evidence that could have allowed David to rule accurately, dispense justice wisely. And this tells you something about his personality right now. We're not going to hear how the response of David may have been or should have been. All we know is that Abinadab has revealed truly his wickedness. He was the one that gave a permissive wink to Amnon to do this thing. He had information with regard to Absalom conspiring to take out Amnon. And just now, he's able to give that information. This has been determined from the time that Absalom found out about his sister Tamar. Therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. So even though it sounds like consolation, you know, it's politics. And he's really just trying to right now put himself in a favorable light 
with David, even though he is certainly, most certainly guilty. He should have been judged as well. Absalom, it says in verse 32 or 34, fled. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. There's a watcher to find out how this event unfolds. Absalom's moving in another direction. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said. So it is. Just as I told you, David, they're coming. See? You can count on me. I'm with you. No, he wasn't. That's the last thing, actually, he was. In verse 36, So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. They're caught up in the sorrow of this conspiracy. You could imagine going to a party and a murderous rampage. Well, we hear about that, don't we, in these times. But this is a brother with great faults, but it was a brother who conspired against the great fault of their older brother. It would have been horrendous. But they also no doubt take observation of David probably picking himself up off the dirt. They have compassion for their father. And their father has compassion for these sons that remain. And all of them are together grieving about this incident of consequence and the dysfunction created by sin. It's a good picture. Sin is grievous. And when it's pictured in this way, it's intended to give us a sobriety to say, man, I don't, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to be a part of it. I want to be a remedy. I want to point people to the Redeemer. I want to be able to say, if I have a voice, then let my voice be not only objective, but highly persuasive spiritually. And so the king's sons with the king, they are now in mourning with their father. And as Jonadab again has seemingly put on this error of being so righteous, during even now this time of weeping, also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. So it's now becoming a very profound moment of lamentation, bitter weeping. Can there be bitter weeping and yet devotional connection with God? I think it's both humanity and divinity. I think we can. But there's a difference between bitter weeping and being bitter in your weeping. Bitter weeping means that it's hard. It's so hard to swallow. It fouls your taste. It's that kind of meaning. But what it can do if it is not then devotionally mingled with calling upon God is the disposition of the person is changed and we become no better than the circumstance that we are bitterly weeping over. It's tough, though. Everything in us resigns to wanting, again, to allow emotions to prevail as opposed to the Holy Spirit to prevail. It's tough. It's tough. And I've seen men and women that have prevailed in circumstances not like this, but that which indeed has been a provocation of bitter weeping and deep devotional connection with God. And they've prevailed. The servants, David, the king, the sons, weeping very bitterly. But Absalom, in verse 37, fled, went to Talameh, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. It's interesting. This conveys a love that David had very exclusively for Amnon, or excuse me, Absalom. And you'll continue to see this. I don't have an answer for you. My thoughts are is that in this, 
it must be a picture of how much God loves his sons and daughters in spite of what they've done. That's the best picture I can come up with. On a human level, it doesn't make sense. But then does God's love make sense to us? If we look in the prison doors and realize that there are certain people in there that are guilty of heinous crimes such as this and worse, let me ask you, how would you be as God walking down that aisle, bars on both sides, and knowing what those men or women did, how much love is going to flow from you? See, we have men here who have been involved in the chaplaincy. That's a tough one. I've been in jail as a pastor. You were a pastor in jail? Meaning I was visiting as a pastor in a jail. I actually didn't do really well because I got locked in the place that had a glass wall. I was getting locked in places. I get locked in banks. That doesn't make me a bank robber. It just really makes me a very clumsy person and having to always deal with my fear about being enclosed in something. But no kidding, the power went out in the jail. I had one bar left on the phone, and I'm sure I've shared it with you. And a prisoner on the other side who actually got to go in and leave me all to myself in this darkness. And I'm going, oxygen depletion. Nobody knows I'm here. I didn't even tell Christy, for Pete's sake, I'm going to die. And I just felt in every way just messed with. And I'm sure I can get this into something that was intending to make sense. I can't. It was brilliant, but I can't. So David, though, right now, oh, I know what I was saying, that Absalom could be in this cited as a picture of really how treacherous and heinous all of us could be, and that really even just the, the fact that we are sinners saved by grace tells us how much God loves us as sinners born into this world as sinners by nature carnally persuaded to do things contrary to God. He loves us. He loves us so much. And I was just saying that I don't think that I have the heart. You wouldn't want me as your God. I wouldn't want myself as God. Because I'm asking myself, do I have that kind of love? I know what the Lord requires of me. But knowing what God knows about all of us, and in particular those people that we've deemed needing to be locked up, he loves them, wants them saved. That's what I was trying to say. David mourns for his son every day. He mourns for his sons and daughters every day. And so Absalom fled, went to Geshur, was there three years. It's a five-year now time between Amnon's death and the time that we are caught up with on Absalom fleeing. And King David longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. That's where the picture of God separates Unless we say, God is comforted, when in the post-mortem of our life we say, I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to that. It could be a picture that we could embrace. In this case, it would indicate that David is, in essence, condoning or at least saying, Amnon was despicable. What you need to understand is Absalom is between two lineages. He's the lineage of royalty under the David line, and he's the lineage of royalty under his mother's side. His mother was a princess. Her father was king of Geshur. Geshur is somewhere in the northern area on the Sea of Galilee. That region was actually a, a small city-state. David formed an alliance that we know was about 114 miles from Jerusalem. 
thereabouts in the northeastern side of Galilee. And it would be in that area that Absalom has fled to. Absalom's home was 14 miles from Jerusalem, easily within his father's sights, easily within the ability to make things right. He flees the 104 miles to the area of Galilee. And there he will hide from his father, hide from the people, until what we will see in chapter 14 is another conspiracy that David will have to address. Only what we'll see is he'll be taken advantage of one more time. <laughs>